Section 18 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 13b. 1561 to 1565. Part 1. The situation of Elizabeth, amid its many difficulties, presented none so perplexing, none which the opinions of her most prudent counsellors were so much divided on the best mode of obviating, as those arising out of the doubt and confusion in which the right of succession was still involved. Her avowed repugnance to marriage, which was now feared to be insurmountable, kept the minds of men continually busy on this dangerous topic, and she was already incurring the blame of many by the backwardness she discovered in designating a successor, and causing her choice to be confirmed, as it would readily have been, by the Parliament. But this censure must be regarded as unjust. Even though the jealousy of power had found no entrance into the bosom of Elizabeth, sound policy required her long to deliberate before she formed a decision, and perhaps, whatever that decision might be, forbade her, under present circumstances, to announce it to the world. The title of the Queen of Scots, otherwise unquestionable, was barred by the will of Henry the Eighth, ratified by an unrepealed act of Parliament, and nothing less solemn than a fresh act of the whole legislature would have been sufficient to render it perfectly free from objection. And could Elizabeth be in reason expected to take such a step in behalf of a foreign and rival sovereign, professing a religion hostile to her own and that of her people? Of one, above all, who had openly pretended a right to the crown preferable to her own, and who is even now exhausting the whole art of intrigue to undermine and supplant her. On the other hand, to confirm the exclusion of the Scottish line, and adopt as her successor the representative of that of Suffolk, appeared neither safe nor equitable. The testamentary disposition of Henry had evidently been dictated by caprice and resentment, and the title of Mary was nevertheless held sacred and indisputable not only by all the Catholics, but by the partisans of strict hereditary right in general, and by all who duly appreciated the benefits which must flow from a union of the English and Scottish sceptres. To inflict a mortal injury on Mary might be as dangerous as to give her importance by an express law establishing her claims, and against any perils in which Elizabeth might thus involve herself, the House of Suffolk could afford her no accession of strength, since their allegiance, all they had to offer, was hers already. The Lady Catherine Grey, the heiress of this house, might indeed have been united in marriage to some Protestant prince, whose power would have acted as a counterpoise to that of Scotland but a secret and reluctant persuasion that the real right was with the Scottish line constantly operated on the mind of Elizabeth so far as to prevent her from taking any step towards the advancement of the rival family. And the unfortunate Lady Catherine was doomed to undergo all the restraints, the persecutions and the sufferings which in that age formed the melancholy appanage of the younger branches of the royal race, with little participation of the homage or the hopes which some minds would have accepted as an adequate compensation. It will be remembered that the hand of this high-born lady was given to Lord Herbert, son of the Earl of Pembroke, on the same day that Guildford Dudley fatally received that of her elder sister, the Lady Jane, and that on the accession of Mary this short-lived and perhaps uncompleted union had been dissolved at the instance of the politic father of Lord Herbert. From this time Lady Catherine had remained in neglect and obscurity till the year 1560, when information of her having formed a private connection with the Earl of Hertford, son of the protector Somerset, reached the ears of Elizabeth. The lady, on being questioned, confessed her pregnancy, declaring herself at the same time to be the lawful wife of the earl. 
her degree of relationship to the queen was not so near as to render her marriage without the royal consent illegal yet by a stretch of authority familiar to the tudors she was immediately sent prisoner to the tower hertford in the meantime was summoned to produce evidence of the marriage by a certain day before special commissioners named by her majesty from whose decision no appeal was to lie he was at this time in france and so early a day was designedly fixed for his answer that he found it impracticable to collect his proofs in time and to the tower he also was committed as the seducer of a maiden of royal blood by this iniquitous sentence a colour was given for treating the unfortunate lady and those who had been in her confidence with every species of harshness and indignity and the following extract from a warrant addressed in the name of her majesty to mr warner lieutenant of the tower sufficiently indicates the cruel advantage taken of her situation Quote, our pleasure is that ye shall as by our commandment examine the lady catherine very straightly how many hath been privy to the love between her and the earl of hertford from the beginning and let her certainly understand that she shall have no manner of favour except she will show the truth not only what ladies or gentlewomen of this court were thereto privy but also what lords and gentlemen for it doth now appear that sundry personages have dealt herein and when it shall appear more manifestly it shall increase our indignation against her if she will forbear to utter it we earnestly require you to use your diligence in this ye shall also send to alderman lodge secretly for st Lowe, and shall put her in awe of diverse matters confessed by the lady catherine and so also deal with her that she may confess to you all her knowledge in the same matters it is certain that there hath been great practices and purposes and since the death of the lady jane she hath been most privy and as ye shall see occasion so ye may keep st Lowe two or three nights more or less and let her be returned to lodges as ye shall think meet etc the child of which the countess of hertford was delivered soon after her committal was regarded as illegitimate and she was doomed to expiate her pretended misconduct by a further imprisonment at the arbitrary pleasure of the queen the birth of a second child the fruit of stolen meetings between the captive pair aggravated in the jealous eyes of elizabeth their common guilt warner lost his place for permitting or conniving at their interviews and hertford was sentenced in the star-chamber to a fine of fifteen thousand pounds for the double offence of vitiating a female of the royal blood and of breaking his prison to renew his offence it might somewhat console this persecuted pair under all their sufferings to learn how unanimously the public voice was in their favour no one doubted that they were lawfully married a fact which was afterwards fully established and it was asked by what right or on what principle their majesty presumed to keep asunder those whom god had joined words ran so high on this subject after the sentence of the star-chamber that some alarmists in the privy council urged the necessity of inflicting still severer punishment on the earl and of intimidating the talkers by strong measures the further consequences of this affair to persons high in her majesty's confidence will be related hereafter meantime it must be recorded to the eternal disgrace of elizabeth's character and government that she barbarously and illegally detained her ill-fated kinswoman first in the tower and afterwards in private custody till the day of her death in january fifteen sixty seven and that the earl her husband having added to the original offence of marrying a princess the further presumption of placing upon legal record the proofs of his children's legitimacy was punished besides his fine with an imprisonment of nine whole years so much of the jealous spirit of her grandfather still survived in the bosom of this last of the tudors 
On another occasion, however, she exercised towards a family whose pretensions had been viewed by her father with a peculiar dread and hostility, a degree of forbearance which had in it somewhat of magnanimity. Arthur and Edmund Pole, two nephews of the Cardinal, with Sir Anthony Fortescue, their sister's husband, and other accomplices, had been led, either by private ambition, by a vehement zeal for the Romish faith, or both together, to meditate the subversion of the existing state of things, and to plan the following wild and desperate scheme. Having first repaired to France, where they expected to receive aid and counsels from the Guises, the conspirators were to return at the head of an army, and make a landing in Wales. Here Arthur Pole, assuming at the same time the title of Duke of Clarence, was to proclaim the Queen of Scots, and the new sovereign was soon after to give her hand to his brother Edmund. This absurd plot was detected before any steps were taken towards its execution. The Poles were apprehended, and made a full disclosure on their trial of all its circumstances, pleading, however, in excuse that they had no thought of putting their design in practice till the death of the Queen, an event which certain diviners in whom they placed reliance had confidently predicted within the year. In consideration of this confession, and probably of the insignificance of the offenders, the royal pardon was extended to their lives, and the illustrious name of Pole was thus preserved from extinction. It is probable, however, that they were kept for some time prisoners in the tower, and thither was also sent the Countess of Lennox, on discovery of the secret correspondence which she carried on with the Queen of Scots. The confession of the Poles seems to have given occasion to the renewal, by the Parliament of 1562, of a law against, quote, fond and fantastical prophecies, end quote, promulgated with design to disturb the Queen's government, by which act also it was especially forbidden to make prognostications on or by occasion of any coats of arms, crests, or badges. A clause added, it is believed, for the particular protection of the favourite Dudley, whose bear and ragged staff was the continual subject of open derision or emblematical satire. A legend in the mirror for magistrates, relating the unhappy catastrophe of George, Duke of Clarence, occasioned by a prophecy against one whose name began with a G, appears to have been composed in aid of the operation of this law. The author takes great pains to impress his readers with the futility as well as wickedness of such predictions, and concludes with the remark that no one ought to imagine the foolish and malicious inventors of modern prophecies inspired, though, quote, learned Merlin, whom God gave the sprite, to know and utter princes' acts to come, like to the Jewish prophets did recite, in shade of beasts, their doings all and some expressing plain by manners of the doom that kings and lords such property should have as have the beasts whose name he to them gave in france everything now wore the aspect of an approaching civil war between the partisans of the two religions under the conduct on one side of the guises on the other of the princes of the house of conde elizabeth judged it her duty or her policy to make a last effort for the reconciliation of these angry factions and she dispatched an ambassador to Charles the Ninth, charged with her earnest representations on the subject. They were, however, ineffectual, and produced apparently no other valuable result than that of rendering Her Majesty better acquainted with the talents and merit of the eminent person whom she had honoured with this delicate commission. This person was Sir Henry Sidney, one of the most upright, as well as able, of the ministers of Elizabeth. That he was the father of Sir Philip Sidney was the least of his praises and it may be cited as one of the caprices of fame that he should be remembered by his son, rather than his son by him. Those qualities which in Sir Philip could afford little but the promise of active virtue, were brought in Sir Henry to the test of actual performance. 
and lasting monuments of his wisdom and his goodness remain in the institutions by which he softened the barbarism of wales and appeased the more dangerous turbulence of ireland by promoting its civilization sir henry was the son of sir william sidney a gentleman of good parentage in kent whose mother was of the family brandon and nearly related to the duke of suffolk of that name the favourite and brother-in-law of henry the eighth sir william in his youth had made one of a band of gentlemen of figure who with their sovereign's approbation travelled into spain and other countries of europe to study the manners and customs of their respective courts he likewise distinguished himself in the field of flodden the king stood godfather to his son henry born in fifteen twenty nine and caused him to be educated with the prince of wales to whom sir william was appointed tutor chamberlain and steward the excellent qualities and agreeable talents of young sidney soon endeared him to edward who made him his inseparable companion and often his bedfellow kept him in close attendance on his person during his long decline and sealed his friendship by breathing his last in his arms during the short reign of this lamented prince sidney had received the honour of knighthood and had been entrusted at the early age of one or two and twenty with an embassy to the french king in which he acquitted himself so ably that he was soon afterwards sent in a diplomatic character to scotland he had likewise formed connections which exerted important influence on his after fortunes sir john cheek held him in particular esteem and through his means he had contracted a cordial friendship with cecil of which in various ways he found the benefit to the end of his life a daughter of the all-powerful duke of northumberland had also honoured him with her hand a dangerous gift which was likely to have involved him in the ruin which the guilty projects of that audacious man drew down upon the heads of himself and his family but the prudence or loyalty of sidney preserved him from the snare no sooner had his royal master breathed his last than relinquishing all concern in public affairs he withdrew to the safe retirement of his own seat in penshurst where he afterwards afforded a generous asylum to such of the dudleys as had escaped death or imprisonment queen mary seems to have held out an earnest of future favour to sidney by naming him amongst the noblemen and knights appointed to attend philip of spain to england for the completion of his nuptials and this prince further honoured him by becoming sponsor to his afterwards celebrated son and giving him his own name but sidney soon quitted a court in which a man of protestant principles could no longer reside with satisfaction if with safety and accompanied to ireland his brother-in-law viscount fitzwalter then lord deputy in that kingdom he at first bore the office of vice-treasurer and afterwards during the frequent absences of the lord deputy the high one of sole lord justice the accession of elizabeth enabled lord robert dudley to make a large return for the former kindness of his brother-in-law and supported by the influence of this distinguished favourite in addition to his personal claims sir henry sidney rose in a few years to the dignities of privy councillor and knight of the garter after his embassy to france he was appointed to the post of lord president of wales to which in fifteen sixty five the still more important one of lord deputy of ireland was added a union of two not very compatible offices unexampled in our annals before or since some particulars of sir henry sidney's government of ireland may come under review hereafter it is sufficient here to observe that ample testimony to his merit was furnished by elizabeth herself in the steadiness with which she persisted in appointing and reappointing him to this most perplexing department of public service in spite of all the cabals of english or irish growth by which though his favour with her was sometimes shaken her rooted opinion of his probity and sufficiency could never be overthrown the failure of elizabeth's negotiations with the french court was followed by her taking up arms in support of the oppressed huguenot 
and ambrose dudley earl of warwick the elder brother of lord robert was sent to normandy at the head of three thousand men of the two dudleys it was said by their contemporaries that the elder inherited the money and the younger the wit of his father if this remark were well founded which seems doubtful the appointment of warwick to an important command must probably be set down to the account of favouritism it was not however the wish of the queen that her troops should often be led into battle it was her main object to obtain lasting possession of the town of havre as an indemnification for the loss of calais so much deplored by the nation and into this place warwick threw himself with his chief force in the next campaign when it was assailed with the whole power of france he prepared according to the orders of elizabeth for a desperate defence and no blame was ever imputed to him for a surrender which became unavoidable through the ravages of the plague and the delay of reinforcements by contrary winds warwick appears to have preserved through life the character of a man of honour and a brave soldier a project which had been for some time under discussion of a personal interview at york between the english and scottish queens was now finally given up elizabeth it is surmised was unwilling to afford her beautiful and captivating enemy such an opportunity of winning upon the affections of the english people and mary was fearful of offending her uncles the princes of guise by so public an advance towards a good understanding with a princess now engaged in open hostilities against their country and faction the failure of this design deserves not to be regretted the meetings of princes have never under any circumstances been known to produce a valuable political result and an interview between these jealous and exasperated rivals could only have exhibited disgusting scenes of forced civility and exaggerated profession thinly veiling the inveterate animosity which neither party could hope effectually to hide from the intuitive perception of the other a terrible plague introduced by the return of the sickly garrison of havre raged in london during the year fifteen sixty three and for some time carried off about a thousand persons weekly the sittings of parliament were held on this account at hertford castle and the queen retiring to windsor kept herself in unusual privacy and took advantage of the opportunity to pursue her literary occupations with more than common assiduity without entirely deserting her favourite greek classics she at this time applied herself principally to the study of the christian fathers with the laudable purpose doubtless of making herself mistress of those questions respecting the doctrine and discipline of the primitive church now so fiercely agitated between the divines of different communions and on which as head of the english church she was often called upon to decide in the last resort cecil had mentioned these pursuits of her majesty in a letter to cox bishop of ely and certainly as matter of high commendation but the bishop answered perhaps with better judgment that after all scripture was quote, that which pierced end quote. that of the fathers one was inclined to pelagianism another to monachism and he hoped that her majesty only occupied herself with them at idle hours even studies so solemn could not however preserve the royal theologian now in her thirtieth year from serious disturbance on account of certain ill-favoured likenesses of her gracious countenance which had obtained a general circulation among her loving subjects so provoking an abuse was thought to justify and require the special exertion of the royal prerogative for its correction and cecil was directed to draw up an energetic proclamation on the subject this curious document sets forth that quote, forasmuch as through the natural desire that all sorts of subjects had to procure the portrait and likeness of the queen's majesty great numbers of painters and some printers engravers had and did daily attempt in diverse manners to make portraitures of her 
wherein none hitherto had sufficiently expressed the natural representation of her majesty's person favour or grace but had for the most part erred therein whereof daily complaints were made amongst her loving subjects that for the redress hereof her majesty had been so importunately sued unto by the lords of her council and other of her nobility not only to be content that some special cunning painter might be permitted by access to her majesty to take the natural representation of her whereof she had been always of her own right disposition very unwilling but also to prohibit all manner of other persons to draw paint grave or portrait her personage or visage for a time until there were some perfect pattern or example to be followed therefore her majesty being herein as it were overcome with the continual requests of so many of her nobility and lords whom she could not well deny was pleased that some cunning person should shortly make a portrait of her person or visage to be participated to others for the comfort of her loving subjects and furthermore commanded that till this should be finished all other persons should abstain from making any representations of her that afterwards her majesty would be content that all other painters printers or gravers that should be known men of understanding and so therein licensed by the head officers of the places where they should dwell as reason it was that every person should not without consideration attempt the same might at their pleasure follow the said pattern or first portraiture and for that her majesty perceived a great number of her loving subjects to be much grieved with the errors and deformities herein committed she straightly charged her officers and ministers to see to the observation of this proclamation and in the meantime to forbid the showing or publication of such as were apparently deformed until they should be reformed which were reformable on the subject of marriage so perpetually moved to her both by her parliament and by foreign princes elizabeth still preserved a cautious ambiguity of language well exemplified in the following passage quote, the duke of Württemberg, a german protestant prince had lately friendly offered his service to the queen in case she were minded to marry to which, January 27th, she gave him this courteous and princely answer, that although she never yet were weary of single and maiden life, yet indeed she was the last issue of her father left, and the only of her house. The care of her kingdom and the love of posterity did counsel her to alter this course of life. But in consideration of the leave that her subjects had given her, in ampler manner, to make her choice than they did to any prince afore, she was even in courtesy bound to make that choice so as should be for the best of her state and subjects and for that he offered therein his assistance she graciously acknowledged the same promising to deserve it hereafter it might be curious to inquire of what nature the assistance politely proffered by the duke in this matter and thus favourably received by her majesty could be it does not appear that he tendered his own hand to her acceptance the French court became solicitous about this time to draw closer its bond of amity with the Queen of Scots, who, partly on account of some wrong which had been done her respecting the payment of her dower, partly in consequence of various affronts put upon her subjects, had begun to estrange herself from her old connections, and to seek in preference the alliance of Elizabeth. French agents were now sent over to Scotland to urge upon her the claims of former friendship, and to tempt her by brilliant promises to listen to proposals of marriage from the Duke of Anjou preferably to those made her by the Archduke Charles or by Don Carlos. Intelligence of these negotiations awakened all the jealousies, political and personal, of Elizabeth. She ordered her agent Randolph, a practised intriguer, to devise means for crossing the matrimonial project. Meantime, by way of intimidation, she appointed the Earl of Bedford to the lieutenancy of the four northern counties, 
and the powerful earl of shrewsbury to that of several adjoining ones and ordered a considerable levy of troops in these parts for the reinforcement of the garrison of berwick and the protection of the english border on which she affected to dread an attack by a united french and scottish force randolph soon after received instructions to express openly to mary his sovereign's dislike of her matching either with the archduke or with any other foreign prince and her wish that she would choose a husband within the island and he was next empowered to add that if the scottish queen would gratify his mistress in this point she need not doubt of obtaining a public recognition of her right of succession to the english crown elizabeth afterwards came nearer to the point she designated lord robert dudley as the individual on whom she desired that the choice of her royal kinswoman should fall by a queen dowager of france and a queen regnant of scotland the proposal of so inferior an alliance might almost be regarded as an insult and mary was naturally haughty but her hopes and fears compelled her to dissemble her indignation and even to affect to take the matter into consideration she trusted that pretexts might be found hereafter for evading the completion of the marriage even if the queen of england were sincere in desiring such an advancement for her favourite which was much doubted and she determined for the present to show herself docile to all the suggestions of her royal sister and to preserve the good understanding on her part unbroken it was during the continuance of this state of apparent amity between the rival queens that elizabeth thought proper to visit with tokens of her displeasure the leaders in an attempt to establish the title of the suffolk line which still found adherents of some importance john hales clerk of the hanaper a learned and able man and like all who espoused this party a zealous protestant had written and secretly circulated a book in defence of the claims of the lady catherine and he had also procured opinions of foreign lawyers in favour of the validity of her marriage for one or both of these offences he was committed to the fleet prison and the secretary was soon after commanded to examine thoroughly into the business and learn to whom hales had communicated his work a more disagreeable task could scarcely have been imposed upon cecil for besides that he must probably have been aware that his friend and brother-in-law sir nicholas bacon was implicated it seems that he himself was not entirely free from suspicion of some participation in the affair but he readily acknowledged his duty to the queen to be a paramount obligation to all others and he wrote to a friend that he was determined to proceed with perfect impartiality in conclusion hales was liberated after half a year's imprisonment bacon the lord keeper who appeared to have seen the book and either to have approved it or at least to have taken no measures for its suppression or the punishment of its author was not removed from his office but he was ordered to confine himself strictly to its duties and to abstain henceforth from taking any part in political business but by this prohibition cecil affirmed that public business suffered essentially for bacon had previously discharged with distinguished ability the functions of a minister of state and he never desisted from intercession with her majesty till he saw his friend fully reinstated in her favour lord john grey of purgo uncle to lady catherine had been a principal agent in this business and after several examinations by members of the privy council he was committed to a kind of honourable custody in which he appears to have remained till his death which took place a few months afterwards these punishments were slight compared with the customary severity of the age and it has plausibly been conjectured that the anger of elizabeth on this occasion was rather feigned than real and that although she thought proper openly to resent any attempt injurious to the title of the queen of scots she was secretly not displeased to let this princess perceive that she must still depend on her friendship for its authentic and unanimous recognition her anger against the earl of hertford for the steps taken by him in confirmation of his marriage was certainly sincere however unjust 
she was provoked perhaps alarmed to find that he had been advised to appeal against the decision of her commissioners on better consideration however he refrained from making this experiment but by a process in the ecclesiastical courts with which the queen could not or would not interfere he finally succeeded in establishing the legitimacy of his sons of the progresses of her majesty during several years nothing remarkable appears on record they seem to have had no other object than the gratification of her love of popular applause and her taste for magnificent entertainments which cost her nothing and the trivial details of her reception at the different towns or mansions which she honoured with her presence are equally barren of amusement and instruction but her visit to the university of cambridge in the summer of fifteen sixty four presents too many characteristic traits to be passed over in silence her gracious intention of honouring this seat of learning with her royal presence was no sooner disclosed to the secretary who was chancellor of the university than it was notified by him to the vice-chancellor with a request that proper persons might be sent to receive his instructions on the subject it appears to have been part of these instructions that the university should prepare an extremely respectful letter to lord robert dudley who was its high steward entreating him in such manner to commend to her majesty their good intentions and to excuse any their failure in the performance that she might be inclined to receive in good part all their efforts for her entertainment so notorious was at this time the pre-eminent favour of this courtier with his sovereign and so humble was the style of address to him required from a body so venerable and so illustrious cecil arrived at cambridge the day before the queen to set all things in order and received from the university a customary offering of two pairs of gloves two sugar-loaves and a march-pane lord robert and the duke of norfolk were complimented with the same gift and finer gloves and more elaborate confectionery were presented to the queen herself when she reached the door of king's college chapel the chancellor kneeled down and bade her welcome and the orator kneeling on the church steps made her an harangue of nearly half an hour Quote, first he praised and commended many and singular virtues planted and set in her majesty which her highness not acknowledging of shaked her head bit her lips and her fingers and sometimes broke forth into passion in these words non est veritas et utinam on his praising virginity she said to the orator god's blessing of thy heart there continue after that he showed what joy the university had of her presence etc when he had done she commended him and much marvelled that his memory did so well serve him repeating such diverse and sundry matters saying that she would answer him again in latin but for fear she should speak false latin and then they would laugh at her this concluded she entered the chapel in great state lady strange a princess of the suffolk line bearing her train and her ladies following in their degrees te deum was sung and the evening service performed with all the pomp that protestant worship admits in that magnificent chapel of which she highly extolled the beauty the next morning which was sunday she went thither again to hear a latin sermon at clarum and in the evening the body of this solemn edifice being converted into a temporary theatre she was there gratified with a representation of the alularia of plautus offensive as such an application of a sacred building would be to modern feelings it probably shocked no one in an age when the practice of performing dramatic entertainments in churches introduced with the mysteries and moralities of the middle ages was scarcely obsolete and certainly not forgotten neither was the representation of plays on sundays at this time regarded as an indecorum End of section eighteen